We will be reading from two passages today, with the first passage from Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, which can be found in page 882 in the Pew Bibles. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The second passage can be found in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, which is in page 980 in the PWS. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the God the Father. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you out here. You're braved, braved the cold. A friend of mine is a pastor. And uh, he sent me a text and said, what do you guys do when it gets, the temperature gets so cold? And I said, we just go to church. And uh, I said, Ignatius, St. Ignatius was eaten by a lion for his faith. We go, to, we go to church in the cold for our faith. It's pretty much the same thing. So it's good to see you here. But I know some of you weren't able to make it. So uh, because of the cold, um, it can be particularly challenging uh, for older people. So I want to acknowledge uh, those that are joining us here by the live stream. It's good to have you here as well. But this morning, oh wait, before I get into my sermon, I want to give another brief commercial for the men's retreat. Pastor John mentioned that uh, during our announcements this morning, but I want to double down on that, or maybe you weren't here for the announcements, but uh, we're having our men's retreat here in February, and uh, so men would love to have you join us, and I'm going to be leading a couple uh, sessions together, but just a great time for us to connect with each other, connect with the Lord And uh, so I really encourage you uh, to make your way there if you're at all possible and look forward to seeing you there. But this morning we continue on in our sermon series held together and our series is based off of Colossians 1.17, which was our text last week, where the Apostle Paul says that in Christ all things hold together. And so the goal of our sermon series is to see how the two natures of Christ, his divine nature and his human nature, 
reveal the very meaning of our existence and also teach us how to hold together realities that belong together, but when left to themselves, they so often pull apart. So if you missed last week, that may sound a bit vague, uh, but just stick with us and uh, hopefully you'll be able to pick it up as we move through our sermon today. So now last week I said I was going to be focusing on baptism and communion this morning, but after some further reflection, I decided I'm going to I'm going to take my sermons on baptism and communion, I'm going to move them into a Lenten sermon series, which will be uh, next, and so we've got to stay tuned for that. But this morning, I want to spend some more time just looking at the basic uh, premise of our sermon series, the doctrine of the two natures of Jesus. So this morning's sermon is going to build off of last week's sermon, which, was, which contained a brief historical interlude about the Council of Nicaea. And we're going to have two texts this morning and another historical interlude. So our first text, which has been read for us, is from Luke 22 with Jesus in the garden. And we'll take a brief historical interlude, but this time not to the Council of Nicaea, but to the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century. And then we'll come back to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 and then close with some points of application. So let me give you our key point of application here at the beginning of the sermon So you kind of know where this whole thing is going. It might not be as obvious uh, right at the beginning. But here's our point of application. The The two natures of Jesus teach us that we should trust God in the hard places of obedience. And we'll see how that gets worked out in this sermon. We should trust God in the hard places of obedience. Maybe some of you this morning are in a hard place of obedience. You have some choices before you, maybe akin to Jesus in the garden. And all of us do at various points have hard places of obedience. But if that's especially true of you this morning, then just be encouraged that the Lord has a word for you this morning. All right, so let's get into our text, our first text, Luke 22, 39 through 46. And here we have the account of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's come to the garden to pray. This is a famous moment in the life of Jesus. Most of us are familiar with it, but for those who may not be familiar with this moment or maybe need a refresher, this is taking place right at the end of Jesus' earthly life and is right before his trial and crucifixion. So you can even look down in your text into verse 47. You can see that this is the next thing that happens after Jesus is done praying is he's arrested and then he is taken to his trial and then ultimately he is crucified. So this is a moment of great anxiety and stress for Jesus because he knows what is coming. So much of a moment of stress that in verse 43, we read that an angel came and ministered to him. So he's in such turmoil that God sends an angel to minister and strengthen him. And then in verse 44, Luke tells us that Jesus was in such an agony that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So this scene, perhaps more than any other moment in Jesus' history, reveals the full scope of his humanity. Last week we talked about the two natures of Christ. Christ is fully God and fully human. And it's here in this point that we see the, the, the fullness of Christ's humanity on display. The human nature that Jesus adopted in the incarnation was your and my human nature. And the point of the incarnation 
was to take upon himself our own very human nature. And so it makes sense then that just as our human nature causes us to recoil from pain and suffering, so too Christ's human nature, which is our human nature that he took upon himself, causes him to recoil from pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of the cross. So much so, in fact, that Jesus here, when he goes into Gethsemane to pray, he prays in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And the simple point I want to make from this text is that Jesus' divine nature in the garden and Jesus' human nature in the garden are pulling him in two different directions. The human nature of Christ wanted to avoid the cross. The divine nature of Christ wanted to be obedient to the Father. And one of those natures was going to have to yield. Now, it's important to note here that in this garden scene, we are not looking at a struggle between Jesus' sinless divine nature and a sinful human nature. Jesus wanted to avoid the cross not because his human nature was sinful, the Bible tells us that Jesus was without sin, but because his human nature was human. The human nature, quite apart from sin, desires to avoid suffering and pain. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, particularly as we move through this sermon, because our desires for comfort and for peace and relational harmony and sex and justice and material blessings and not having to be hung on a cross. There is nothing innately wrong with any of these desires. So your desire for a happy marriage, for a better paying job, for your kids to be more obedient, for your parents to be more understanding, for good health, for good friends, all of those are just innate human desires. We were created with those desires and they're not sinful desires. And sometimes I think that we can think that when we feel conflict between our desire and God's desire, well, then it must be because we're desiring something sinful. But that's sometimes true. But more often than not, the thing that we desire, and if you take a look at your sinful desires and start peeling back the layers of the onion, you'll find that underneath the thing that we desire, just like Christ desired to not be crucified, it's not sinful. It's just human. And so all of us as Christians can know a bit of what it must have felt like for Christ in the garden. Because as Christians, we also, in a manner of speaking, have two natures. When God saves us, he saves us by placing his own divine nature inside of us. That's what the Holy Spirit is. And he makes us, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, partakers of of the divine nature. We become little reverse incarnations, so to speak. Christ became by adoption what we are by nature so that we could become by adoption what he is by nature. And what that means is that all Christians have had or will have times in our lives when the human nature that we are born with will pull us one way and the divine nature that we were born again by will pull us in the opposite way. 
And everything in our humanity will want to go to the right, but everything in the divine nature will be telling us to go to the left. And the struggle will be so intense that it will feel like following the divine nature will be the death of our human nature. And you know what? It just might, just like it was for Jesus. We know the outcome of Jesus' garden contest. In verse 42, he finishes his prayer with saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted the desires of his sinless human nature to the desires of his divine nature, and he went to the cross. Now, the basic theological point from last week's sermon was that Christ is able to hold together two things that belong together but that are prone to pull apart. And here, in this garden contest, we are seeing the prone-to-pull-apart reality of Jesus' two natures and how, at great cost to himself, he held them both together. Now we need to take a step deeper into our Christology. Because if we stopped here in Luke 22, if we stopped in the garden with Jesus' surrendering the the human nature to his divine nature, we might be inclined to think that when Christ holds two things together that are prone to pull apart, he does so by making one thing the winner and the other thing the loser. So Jesus' divine nature won and his human nature lost. So by principle of extension, then, we might think that when we are facing a hard place of obedience like Jesus in the garden, when we feel the tug of war between our human desires and our Holy Spirit desires, that the only outcome will either be obedience to God which will result in pain and suffering and loss, or obedience to our human desires, which will lead us away from pain and suffering and give us relief, but will be disobedient to God. It's a zero-sum game. It's all or nothing, one or the other. And we can't see how obedience could ever lead to the flourishing of our human desires. And maybe that's what it seems like for some of you this morning that are facing the Garden Gethsemane hard place of obedience. You feel like Jesus in the garden, that obedience to God will be the end of your life. It will be the end of your deepest human desires. Now, that's not quite true, and in order to help us think about that, it's time for this morning's church history interlude. It's my favorite part. I have, uh, my, my dream job is to be a pastor, but my second dream job is to be a church history professor. And here in this moment, I can hold them both together in a single person. So this is great. This time, I came with, with pictures to kind of make it interesting for you. So last week, we focused on the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. All right, now, as I mentioned last week, the categories of thought that were available to the church in the fourth century came from the Greco-Roman world. Greco-Roman philosophy, and they didn't easily allow for a person to speak about one thing being two things. So it took a minute for the church to figure out how to talk properly about Jesus' heavenly identity 
and his earthly identity. If Jesus was God the creator, how could he be a human creature? And if he was a human creature, how could he be God the creator? And the orthodox consensus was not that Christ was one or the other or a little bit of both. The orthodox consensus was at Nicaea that he was fully God and fully man. And that was the basic conclusion of the Nicene Council in the 4th century. It's what we say in the Nicene Creed when we say the Nicene Creed together, that Christ is fully God and fully creature. So in the Son, God holds together the creator and the creature. But the Nicene Council left an important question unanswered. Granted, the Son holds together both natures in his single person. But how does he hold these two natures together? Or we could ask it like this. How do these two natures relate to each other? That was the pressing question of the 5th century, which eventually led to the Council of Chalcedon. What was the relationship between Christ's divine nature and his human nature? All right, now a first heretical attempt was Nestorianism. Nestorianism was named after Nestorius, and as a general rule of thumb, don't ever get a heresy named after you. So that could be a point of <laughs> application here this morning. Don't get a heresy named after you. Nestorius taught that the two natures of Jesus sat side by side, as it were, with a sort of wall between them. And Nestorius was concerned that if the two natures mixed together or touched, the integrity of the divine nature would be compromised. God was too holy and transcendent. The divine nature couldn't mingle with the human nature. And not just because the human nature was sinful, but because the human nature was finite and temporal and mutable, it was less than. And God was infinite and immutable and truly transcendent and exalted. And so you can't bring these two things together. Maybe you think that way too sometimes a little bit. Like God is too holy, it would like compromise him in some way if he came near to us. It's a little bit of Nestorius's logic. So both natures in Christ had to exist independent of each other. But the church's bishops said, no, that would not work. First of all, human existence uh, is not independent of divine existence. Human existence needs the divine nature to, to survive, as the scriptures say. In him we live and move and have our being. So human nature has no independent existence. It depends upon the divine nature. And second, human nature needed God to actually touch it, to draw near to it, to save the creation. The whole point of the incarnation was that the divine nature had to come near to humanity, come into humanity. So to keep the human nature and the divine nature separated by a wall, as it were, that wasn't going to work. So Nestorius got canceled. So a second, nearly opposite heretical attempt was Eutychianism. Now, Eutychianism was conceived by Eutychius, who was also a guy that had a heresy named after him. And Eutychianism taught that when Christ incarnated into human nature, the divine nature was so powerful that it absorbed and dissolved his human nature. Like a drop of vinegar is dissolved in the ocean. So you can see just a little bit of the human nature there kind of being dropped like a little drip into the divine nature and it's beginning to absolve 
dissolve and go away. But again, the church's bishops said no. If Christ's human nature was dissolved and lost in the infinite sea of Christ's divine nature, then in what sense can we really say that humanity is saved? Because if God's coming near to humanity, touching humanity, meant that humanity was unmade, then that wouldn't do humanity any good. That sounded more like some sort of Eastern, Stoic, Hindu, Buddhist sort of thing where the soul just sort of evaporates into the endless infamy of God and ceases to exist. And that was not Christianity's idea of salvation. So Eutychianism was out. Now, the answer about how these two natures related to each other was Chalcedon. At Chalcedon, the church's bishops insisted that the dependent human nature of Jesus exists in and subsists in and depends upon the infinite resources and life of the divine nature. So the human nature is not independent of the divine nature, like Nestorius said, nor is the human nature dissolved into the divine nature, like Eutychius said. The dependent human nature rests in and draws its life from, it takes its lead from, the independent divine nature. And that explains the dynamic that we are seeing with Christ in the garden. Christ's human nature is coming under, it is submitting to, it is taking its lead from the divine nature. But keep those Bibles open because there's more. What Chalcedon is teaching us and what the Bible teaches us and what Christ's two natures teach us is that when the human nature humbly submits to the independent divine nature, the divine nature glorifies the human nature. And to make that point, I want to go back to the New Testament and the story of Jesus, but this time to the story of Jesus found in Philippians chapter 2. So turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, page 980, if you still need that reminder. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we'll pick up there. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is calling the Philippians to a posture of humility. And so in order to inspire them in a posture of humility, he points to the humility of Jesus. And so he talks about the incarnation, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and exaltation here in this brief passage. And he says, Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So here Paul is talking about the incarnation. Jesus exists, or the Son exists uh, from eternity with God in the form of God, but he didn't grasp the privileges and the prestige and the power of all that, but he took the form of a servant, of a human. He took uh, the likeness of men, and he he found, then he says in verse 8, Found in human form, he humbled himself all the way to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus took upon himself our humanity and he took the form of a servant to such an extent that it even led him to the point of Jesus dying on the cross, which is what we saw in Luke 22. But that's not the end of the story because then we get to Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the human nature of Christ submitted to the divine nature, the result was not merely the death of the human nature, end of story. Jesus didn't just submit the human nature to the divine nature, went to the cross, died, end of story. The result was the glorification of the human nature. The early bishops spent so much time in the third century, fourth century, and beyond trying to figure out how to talk about precisely in accurate terms Jesus' two natures because they rightly saw that the relationship between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature was paradigmatic for how humanity relates to God. The way that Christ's human nature surrenders to the care of the divine nature reveals how humanity is supposed to surrender to the care of God. And the way that the divine nature of Christ saves and redeems and glorifies Christ's human nature reveals God's saving plan for humanity. So Chalcedon is insisting on the biblical truth that the human nature actually gains its full creaturely destiny in its union with the divine nature. It's only in union with the divine nature that the human nature fully flourishes and becomes everything that God intended humanity to be from the beginning. So to be more precise in our graphics, the Chalcedonian consensus is actually this. It is human nature glorified. Not simply the human nature being brought into the divine nature, surrendering to the divine nature. But when the human nature surrenders to the divine nature and is brought into the divine nature, the divine nature glorifies and exalts human nature in ways that it never could be on its own. So when Jesus' human nature humbly surrendered to the divine nature, the divine nature, God, exalted him in his human nature above every name in heaven and on earth. So Paul is not telling us that God exalted Jesus in his divine nature. That was already exalted from all eternity. The divine nature of Jesus needed no exaltation. But Jesus had taken upon himself our meek and mild and lowly human nature. And, and in his humility, he had brought that into the divine nature. And God then exalted that human nature far above, as the scripture says here, every name that can be named, not only in heaven, but also under the earth. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, God is exalting Jesus in his human nature. And what we see God do for Christ's human nature in Philippians 2 is the same promise, the same logic, the same gospel logic that he holds out for all of those who are in Christ, meaning you and I. All right, now let me see if I can put some application to this. When we bring our human nature into relationship with God, our human nature and God's divine nature will often pull against each other. Not at every moment, but there will come times in our life like what Jesus faced in the garden where our human nature and the divine nature inside of us will pull against each other. And it's not just because our human nature is sinful, though that is true. But all the same, the tensions that we often feel when our human nature pulls against the divine nature is 
perfectly understandable as human creatures. Our human nature was not made to desire suffering and pain and hardship. So God is not unsympathetic with what he asks of us. And we shouldn't feel guilty about not wanting to suffer or face pain or hardship. Our human nature was made to desire relational harmony and physical comfort and food and drink and sex and life and friends and purpose. But then sin came along and messed things up. And now what might have been a life of comfort and peace in the human nature and sometimes still can be, has also become a life of pain and suffering. And God knows that the only way to the healing and exaltation of our humanity is through submission to the divine nature. The human nature has to be brought into the divine nature so that the divine nature can care for, surround, protect, and exalt the human nature. And sometimes... The bringing of the human nature into the divine nature results in a cross. And this is the Chalcedonian insight that lies at the core of Jesus' teaching when he says that we must die in order to live, that we must lose our lives in order to find them. And when God's call on our life is to ask us to surrender our humanity, not just our sinful humanity, but our our humanity to the divinity, that's when the great test of obedience comes. I think that the early tests in the Christian life are to stop sinning, to just surrender your sinful actions. But the deeper tests are when God asks us not to stop, not to offer him our sinfulness, but to offer him our humanity, the goodness of what he has given us and what he has made us to be the thing that we want to hold on to that aren't even bad things. And he asks us to give those things to him as well. It's the great test of obedience is not will I surrender my illegitimate desires to the divine nature, but will I surrender my legitimate desires to the divine nature. And in order to do that, the key is faith. Faith that the divine nature will do right by you. That the divine nature is not calling you merely to the death of your humanity, but is calling you to the glorification of your humanity. Will we have faith to believe that when God refuses our request to let the cup pass us by, when he asks us to do hard things, well, we have faith to believe that he is actually granting our desire for life and glory. That's the great gospel truth that in Chalcedon, the bishops are insisting upon. That when we humbly surrender our human desires and impulses to God's desires and impulses, the result is the glorification and flourishing of our humanity. So my pastoral heart for you in all of this and the reason that I've taken us down this road is because I want you to see that dying is for living and losing our lives is for finding them and that when we surrender our human nature to God, our human nature is exalted. God doesn't call us to die just to die or to lose our lives just so that we can stay lost. 
He doesn't call us to surrender so that he can be the winner. Though he's just got a kind of a big chip on his shoulder and he wants to assert his power over everybody. And so he wants to make sure that you know that he's bigger and better and that he's in charge. And so he makes you do what he tells you to do so that you can know that he's in charge. He's not trying to be the winner. He calls us to surrender so that we can be the winner. Because he knows that our humanity cannot become everything that God wants it to be, everything that we want it to be, if we keep it separate from him. And so he calls us into obedience, like he called Jesus into obedience in the garden. Because it's only in those hard places of obedience as we bring the fullness of our humanity into the divine nature that God can exalt us and make us who he created us to be. So where do you need to surrender your human nature to the divine nature this morning? What part of that blue circle are you tempted to kind of keep for yourself? You'll give God much of your humanity, much of the things that matter to you. But there are parts of you that you just aren't sure God will do right by. And so you keep back your job. You keep back your friends. You keep back your recreation. You keep back your marriage. You can have everything else, but you can't have that. What's the part of your good humanity that you are tempted to keep back from God and not surrender fully to the care of the divine nature? Maybe you keep it back because you know that it will likely result in the death of that thing, just like it resulted in Christ's death. But take heart in the gospel message that when you give God something that ends up being put to death, it's the very means by which God exalts it and raises it up. So don't hold on to the things in your life or your own very whole life because you think that you can do better than God. Give to God all that you are and let him exalt and raise it up. We're going to close with the song. We've sung it before, I I think, here at Calvary, but it's all about uh, uh, Christ's prayer in the garden, that God's will would be done even above our own. So as we sing this song, let me invite you to come forward and maybe even just kneel in the front if you can. If it's hard to kneel, you don't have to kneel, but to come forward And to use this morning as a time of marking between you and God that I'm giving this thing to you or I'm giving my whole self to you. I'm placing this in your care. As we're singing, you can come forward whatever you want, whenever you want. There won't be people here to pray for you so you can have just a private moment with you and the Lord. But sometimes it helps to do something with our bodies to mark moments in our our journeys spiritually. So if you feel like the Lord's just been tugging on your heart even throughout this sermon, you know exactly what that thing is that he wants you to release to him that you've been tempted to hold on to, and you want to have a a fresh commitment to release that to him, then I encourage you to come forward while we sing. But I'm going to pray for us. The band will come up and sing, and then you come forward uh, as the Lord prompts you and leads you. God, thank you that you gave us Christ. I thank you that he is able to hold together in himself all things, all of God and all of creation. 
And God, uh, as creatures, we are uh, we're just so prone to want to self-protect and run away. And we see uh, that coming into you uh, may mean our death in so many ways, and so we just we, we resist it, but yet... Coming into you is our life, Lord, and I pray that you would give us faith to see that, that you want to raise us up, that it's dying that we live, it's losing our lives that we find them, it's humbling ourselves that we're exalted. So God, give us grace for that, even this morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen.